Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. So much to talk about in this new year. A new year of travel, great possibilities, great concerns, global uncertainty, economic instability, a new president, uh, unstable governments all over the world, whether it's France and Italy Uh, Let's not forget Brexit and a few other things. And, of course, the power of the U.S. dollar against foreign currencies like the euro and the the British pound. Uh, But forgetting that, I think it's just appropriate for me to give you uh, all of my wish list of what I think should be done in the year 2017. And I should preface all this by saying these are not unreasonable requests. They're based on common sense. There should be no pushback on it. It's not about how much it costs, it's about how much it's worth, and in the long run, it doesn't cost more money. It actually costs less, and it works better for private sector, works better for public sector, and last but not least, it works better for travelers themselves. So let's start with this one. For 2017, I'd like some truth in scheduling. What do I mean by that? I'll tell you. If you ask any airport authority, whether it's the guys who run LAX or JFK or, for that matter, the airport in Frankfurt, and you say to them, on the runways that you use for takeoffs, how many airplane takeoffs can you handle, can that runway handle per hour based on separation between planes, wake vortexes that you have to worry worry about between plane takeoffs in terms of the the, the churning of the air caused by previously departing airplanes to maintain every margin of safety possible. Give me max number of takeoffs you can handle on that runway. Guess what the answer is? About 22. Because you have about two and a half minutes, maybe two and a quarter minutes if you're really pushing it between takeoffs. That's in an hour. Okay, I get it. It's reasonable. Makes sense. Here's the problem. Why are the airlines then allowed to schedule 34 departures in that hour? Not only is it unreasonable, it doesn't work. And it's misleading. Airlines want to be competitive on schedule, but they're not being competitive on reality. You cannot schedule that many flights at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's physically impossible. So if there are 34 flights scheduled, and you're on the 30th flight, you better read a copy of uh, Gone with the Wind or War and Peace. Um, and by the way, you're going to be at least an hour late to where you're going. Now, I know how the airlines try to adjust for this. They fudge the schedules. So when an airline pilot gets on the PA when you're in the air and you're starting your approach into Atlanta, for example, and he says, well, the flight attendants, please prepare for an early arrival. Let's get real here. Early compared to what? 1978? No. Based on on the same equipment, flying the same time, flying the same speed, you're still 30 minutes later than you would have been in 1978. This makes no sense at all. So, again, my hope number one, truth in scheduling. Now, here's my next item up for bids here on The Price is Right. Let me give you a for instance. It's a beautiful day. There is no weather at all. You board your flight on time. It's a brand new plane. It even has that brand new plane smell of rich Corinthian leather. You sit in your seat. The flight attendants could not be in a better mood. The pilot is thrilled. 
You push back on time. There's no delay getting to the runway. You fasten your seatbelt. You sit back. You take off. Not a, not a bump in the air. Not a worry. The food is phenomenal. You know, Michelin quality. Uh, the in-flight entertainment is beyond compare. Everything is great. And of course, the pilot even tells you to prepare for an early arrival. You're thrilled. You land. And guess what? Your gate's not available. Well, to quote, well, to paraphrase a quote from the treasure of the Sierra Madre, we don't need your stinking gateways. Let's go back to the future. You see, what the airlines won't tell you is that at every airport, at every cluster of terminals and, and, getway, and gateways or jetways, there are what they call penalty boxes. It's almost every other slot 150 feet behind the plane at the jetway is a penalty box where a plane can park. Shut down the engines, they roll up the, uh, the portable stairs, and you get off the plane. What a concept. Think about the fuel burn that they're taking care of because they can't find the jetway. Think of crew time and how many crews go illegal on time because they're just stuck there. Think about misconnected passengers because they couldn't make their connecting flights because they were stuck there. Not to mention their misconnected bags, lost productivity, compensation, rebooking, you name it, it's a mess. Okay, then cut to this idea. Your gate's not available or your jetway's not available. And with the exception being severe weather, like ice and snow, which would be a physical hazard to anybody walking on the tarmac, assuming that's not the case, the same guys with the orange cones that are guiding you in can put the cones down once you're parked at the penalty box, wheel up that portable stair, and guess what? You're off the plane, your bags are off the plane, there's no excessive fuel burn, you make your connections, your bag make your, makes your, their connections, everybody's happy. It's just amazing to me that in the, in the 20 years I've asked for this, not a single airline CEO has ever given me a reasonable answer why they don't do it. To me, that's just crazy. But guess what? I'm just getting started. Here's another one. In 2017, let's come to grips with, with, with in my book, the fact that the people who design, or at least most of the people who design airports have never flown and have never been in an airport. They don't know. They're living in a bubble or denial, or they're in denial in the bubble. Either way, it's not working because they don't understand how people travel. Here's an example. Where do they have baggage carts? At most airports, in baggage claim, where you need them the least because you're only going to walk 20 feet to get to a taxi or, or a driver. Why don't they put the, the baggage carts at the gates? Do you see how people travel today? They're loaded down with carry-ons. It's the baton death march to get from the gate to baggage claim, whether they have baggage to claim or not. Very simple solution. Baggage carts at the gates, baggage carts upstairs prior to departure, and at airports that have shuttle trains to take you out to the different terminals, why do they deny you the opportunity to bring your cart? The carts fit on the trains. The carts fit through the doors. Can it just be a revenue issue? No, it's a stupidity issue. That's a solution that needs to be done. Okay? Here's another one for 2017. More preclearance. Does anybody know what preclearance means? It's been around for 52 years. In fact, it started in Canada. And you'll now find it in the Bahamas, in Bermuda, in uh, Ireland, in Abu Dhabi, and of course many airports in Canada. And... What it means is when you're coming home from your overseas flight or from your overseas trip, you actually clear customs and border protection, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, in those countries. So you, before you board your flight, you've already gone through CBP. And what does that mean? It goes back to the same concept of the penalty box. When you land back in the U.S., congratulations. You don't have to stand in a two-hour line to go through customs or to get your bags. It means your bags will connect. 
it means you will connect. And even if you're landing where you need to go, it means you go home. Nobody stands in line and security has not been compromised. Uh, it's my understanding that there are another 13 or 14 airports that have been approved for preclearance. And the good news for taxpayers is we don't pay for it. The foreign governments do because it becomes an attractive aspect of those airports and a reason why you'd want to fly. The best example of all is, is, the, is the airport in Abu Dhabi. Etihad, the airline there, went to the United States government and said, okay, what do you want in a preclearance facility? You tell us. You design it. You tell us what you need. We'll pay for it. They paid for it. They built it. And now a lot of people will drive from Dubai to Abu Dhabi to fly back to the United States because once they get on their plane, they've already cleared customs in the United States. They just walk off when they land. It's such an easy concept to embrace. I'm amazed that more people don't do it. It's just crazy. Okay? I mean, it's like easy. All right? Here's another one. Hotel room design. We're going to give the airports a break now. We're going to go to hotel room design. No hotel room designer should be paid for their work until they spend at least three nights in the hotel they designed. And to me, it gets down to two things. Lighting and space. And I'm not being particular about this as a man. I'm speaking to the female travelers as well. There's The, the lights in most hotel rooms are not sufficiently uh, good enough for your makeup or to see anything for that matter. And there's not enough space for all the stuff we take with us. Hotel room designers seem to have gotten together in a conspiracy to trap us with mood lighting. You trap me with mood lighting and you've automatically put me in a bad mood. Automatically. Instead, give me a 300-watt bulb with a, with a, you know, with a rheostat, with a dimmer, don't give me a 40-watt bulb with an on-off switch. Why? Because, once again, the people who design hotel rooms have never stayed in one. They don't realize that once we move into a hotel room, we tend to kind of live and work there. We read there. We think there. We get on our phones there. We don't just sleep there. So why wouldn't we want to have the option of light bright enough to actually read? Gee, what a concept. All right, we're just getting started. So stick with me when we come back. The rest of my hopes for 2017 as the CBS Radio Travel Hour continues. Back right after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Greenberg here with you, the travel editor for CBS News, talking about my uh, my hopes, my wishes, my my dream list for common sense in travel for the year 2017. We last left off with with my with my bitch, if you will, on hotel room light. Now let's talk about hotel room thermostats. Why do I need a, a degree from MIT to operate the thermostat? It's like the old days of trying to program your VCR. I couldn't do it. So I still have difficulty. Okay, call me challenged dealing with most thermostats in most hotel rooms. There's a simple solution to this. You remember the old Honeywell wheel? You just turned to the temperature you wanted and it was either on or off. You didn't have to program it to go on and off at 809. Just on or off. And the way that they've set up rooms these days that you have to activate the heater or the air conditioner based on your plastic room key being inserted near the door would still apply. So you're not wasting any energy. At least you're being able to control it. Any two-year-old can do it. I Here's the thing. If a two-year-old can do it, put it in my room. If somebody from MIT has to do it, leave the room. So there you go. That's the one. Then... And I wish more hotels would realize this. And they haven't in over 25 years. You're engendering a tremendous amount of ill will with your Darth Vader minibars. You know the ones I'm talking about. The ones that are infrared that if you ever even come close to the can or bottle, it charges you. You know what? 
bury the cost in the room rate, please, and just give me a couple of free sodas and, and sparkling waters, and I'll stay at the hotel time and time again. Nobody wants to be nickeled and dimed for a $9 Snicker bar. And you and I both know that if you look at the Snickers bar long enough, you're going to eat it. We also can do the math. What's a $7 bottle of water doing in our room? I can buy a case for $7. We shop. We know these things. I don't care how modern the hotel is, how cutting edge the design, how cool or cute the front desk attendants are. If you insult my intelligence, that's a declaration of war. It really is. Speaking of that, can 2017 be the year that we finally get rid of the resort fee? Do you know why there's such a thing as a resort fee? It's semantics. The hotels want to be competitive on rates, so they'll quote the lowest rate possible and then throw in a $20 a night resort fee. Look, either you have a towel or you don't. I shouldn't have to pay $20 a night to go to the pool. It's their own attempt to try to stay competitive on rate. The problem is they're not being competitive on value. This has to change. And the hotels that realize that, my goodness, they're the ones that get repeat business. It's really as simple as that. And, you know, there's a hotel in Europe that figured that out about the minibars. Here's what they did. They knew it was a source of major negative feedback from their guests. So what did they do? They quietly raised their rates $30 a night, or about 20 pounds a night in those days. They threw the mini bars out, and they replaced them with just real, regular refrigerators. What a concept. Now, what did they put in their refrigerators? Soft drinks, candy, cookies, peanuts, juices, anything non-alcoholic. And they made it free. Most of the people who were staying at that hotel were coming off a seven, eight, or 10-hour flight, and they started visualizing that chocolate chip cookie, knowing full well they wouldn't have to go to their wallet to enjoy it. They were paying for it, of course. It was just buried in the rate. But the goodwill that came from that is still happening. Guess what happened in that hotel? Nobody complained about the increase in the room rate, and occupancy went up something like 17% in one year. That's just remarkable. But is it really surprising? No, because the hotel touched on negative touch points and figured it out. And that's the important thing. They figured it out. And the guys who are the bean counters of that hotel, oh, they weren't happy at all because they wanted that short-term revenue from that $7 bottle of water. Well, they weren't getting it anyway. These are the same hotels, by the way, that used to charge you for long-distance phone calls even if you were using a telephone company credit card. And then we all got smart, got our cell phones, and never used the hotel phone ever again unless it was the wake-up call, and that was only if they remembered to call us. We now use our iPhones to wake up. So things have changed, right? Now, back to uh, a few more things about airports and a few more things about trains. Departure boards should only be relegated to a historic retrospective on bad performance art. Because departure boards haven't told the truth in 50 years. All the departure board tells you is what time they think you're supposed to leave or the time you were scheduled to leave. And there's no real good information there. I'll give you an example that just happened to me. Uh, I was supposed to come back on a three o'clock flight, scheduled on a three o'clock flight from Istanbul to New York a nonstop. And the night before I left, it was snowing. It doesn't snow a lot in Istanbul, and by the way, they're not known for their great snow removal techniques at the airport because they're just not used to this. Uh, and yet, if you go online and look at the departure boards, it would tell you that the three o'clock flight was online. I mean, on time. Really? Um, you get to the airport, look at the departure board, it tells you the 3 o'clock flight is on time. I didn't believe that. So before I ever left the hotel, I had the concierge call Turkish Air and say, could you tell me the tail number of the aircraft assigned to the 3 o'clock flight? And they did. I said, okay, where's that tail number? It had never left New York the night before. So how could it leave on time that afternoon from Turkey? It couldn't. 
Now, there was an 8 o'clock flight that morning that showed it had taken off on the computer. I just asked them, has the 825 left yet? No, it's been delayed for five hours. I said, can I get a seat on that plane? Well, yeah. I said, but before you give me the seat, what's the tail number assigned to that plane? And where's that tail number? It was on the ground in Istanbul. Guess who took off? I did. All those other people, I think they're still waiting at the airport. So airlines need to do a better job in real time of telling us what our options are. And until they do that, the burden of that falls upon us to pick up the phone and have a conversation with a human being who can literally track that aircraft. I know there are apps out there to do it. I don't believe in the apps. I mean, they're a nice guide, like the internet's a nice guide, but I don't, I don't look at it as a Bible. I wanna to talk to somebody on the phone who's got their screen in front of them in real time that can tell me, yes or no, is that plane leaving on time? And that's how I got out of town and all those other people didn't. So they should either have a retrospective of departure boards that have lied for 50 years or just burn the departure boards. They don't happen to work. It's really as simple as that. Now, cruise lines for 2017. Think about this. Right now, there are more than 1,000 ports of call around the world where cruise ships show up. That is amazing. I couldn't wish for anything more than that. Here's what I do wish for. More time in those ports. If you're going to give me a seven-day cruise, give me at least three days at sea. And the other days, let me at least overnight in two of those ports for a night and a half or two nights. It's a far more worthwhile experience especially if it's not a typical seven-day Caribbean cruise. Not for the first-timers who think they have to get off every day and buy another straw hat and T-shirt. I'm talking about for people who have cruised before. And you're starting to see some cruise lines, like Celebrity and Azamara and a few others, actually change their schedules to give you more nights in port. So you have a, a, a better chance of a genuine, authentic experience and not just an organized tour to one museum and a gift shop. I love that idea. And I hope this is the year that the cruise lines get the message that this actually is worth it, that passengers really want it. And then last but not least with the cruise lines, I would like them to do one, if not two things, and it involves the same thing, refunds. Most cruise ships have such a draconian refund policy that it becomes impossible to cancel your cruise without losing your entire investment. And it's my belief, and I have to preface this by saying I cannot prove it, but I believe it, that during flu season, you get so many outbreaks of the norovirus on cruise ships because there are some people who actually get sick ashore but don't want to lose their deposit or their full payment because there's no refund, so they actually board the ship sick, and the rest is history. Cruise lines should give you the opportunity, if they can't fill the cabin, to let you fill the cabin so that you're not out the money. It's really as simple as that. And it's in the cruise ship's best interest to do it because it shows loyalty to you, respect to you. Now, if you can't fill the cabin, then you're on the hook. But if you can fill the cabin or the cruise line can fill the cabin, who loses in that? Nobody. Nobody. And... Remember, for most cruise lines, it's all about onboard revenue. So if they fill the cabin, then that person may go to the rock climbing wall or to the bowling alley or to the ice rink, or they may take a shore excursion or have their photos taken or do some retail shopping or go to the casino. That's the only thing the cruise ships want. As long as that cabin's full, what do they care? But by basically saying to you, if you cancel within 30 days, you get nothing back, I believe has always sent the wrong message and there's got to be a middle ground. And the middle ground is give the passenger the option, either directly or through their travel agent, to fill that cabin so that the original passenger is not out the money. And the goodwill doesn't, doesn't evaporate either. It really is that simple. So those are some of my wishes for 2017. would love to hear what yours are. Of course, you can always write me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your thoughts. But don't go away because when we come back, 
the brave new world of driverless cars. We'll be joined by Alex Davies from Wired Magazine on what he thinks is going to happen this year on the roads. Back right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg and welcome back to the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor for cbs news and joining me now uh, the associate editor for wired magazine alex davies to talk about one of my favorite topics when it comes to travel, the brave new world of the uh, driverless car or the self-driving car. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you and I have talked about this for at least a year now. Uh, we did a couple of pieces on CBS about it and all the different you know, inputs that have to be put together, all the different parameters that have to be followed, all the different protocols that have to be somehow programmed in to get to the point where we can safely sit behind no wheel and go from point A to point B and C and E and J and Y uh, in comfort, safety, and maybe even speed. Uh, The Consumer Electronics Show just ended recently in Las Vegas, and usually every year when I've gone, it's all about, um, in, in past years, it's always been about, you know, new advances in video, new advances in audio, all the gamers are there. Uh, but in the last couple of years, it's virtual reality and driverless cars, and this year especially driverless cars, right? Yeah, the show is actually, it's funny because CES happens just a few days before the Detroit Auto Show, and these days, as many automakers are in Las Vegas for CES as they are in Detroit for the Auto Show, because CES is where they all go to talk about connected cars and especially self-driving technology. And that's really the most exciting thing happening in the industry now. So CS is basically a car show in addition to everything else it does. All right. So now you have the Google guys exhibiting. You've got, I'm sure you've got Volvo and Mercedes and and, um, and all the guys who are, you know, who are at BMW, Audi. They're all there. Um, do they all share the same optimism that this is not just a brave new world, but it's going to happen immediately? You know, for the last year, it's interesting that we've seen all of this news of automakers coming out and saying, this is something we're really committed to, not just the idea of selling people cars that have some autonomous capabilities, but getting into the marketplace where it's cars with no steering wheels, no pedals, it's kind of a ride-sharing situation. Ford, GM have all started piling onto this. But just last week, we saw Nissan actually start to push against that narrative, against the optimism that this kind of technology will be ready. They say that in five years' time, it's impossible to have a car that can reliably drive itself in all of the different conditions. There are just too many things that can happen in the real world. All right, so, so let me so not, let me let me yeah. go back for a second. Um, you know, I talked to guys at uh, at Carnegie Mellon. I talked to the guys at MIT. You know, those are they're at the forefront of all the R and D work, and trying to to figure out the answers to those questions in every possible scenario you can imagine, or maybe not imagine. And when we first did the story, they were grappling with moral choice. They were grappling with, you know, things that humans would do, confronted with certain situations that they were having difficulty programming the cars to do given the same choices. So, for example, if I'm in a driverless car, or I'll take this back, if I'm in a car, I'm driving my car behind you, and you stop, and you get out to unload your trunk, and you stop there for a good two or three minutes, the first thing I'm going to do is basically inch around you over the double yellow line to see if I can drive around you. Um, Safely, of course, but that would be my choice. The current driverless cars are not allowed to drive over the yellow line, and so you'd just be stuck, or I would still be stuck behind you as long as you were stuck there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really that's a, hard situation for these cars. Right, and that's and that's Second a relatively hand. and that's a relatively benign example. Then there's the example that you and I have talked about before, but bears repeating, where I'm now driving down the road, and all of a sudden there's a semi coming right at me, 
And on my left, if I want to go over the yellow line, there's another car coming after me or coming at me. And to my right, there's a woman on the street with a baby stroller. What do I do? And, uh, you know, those kinds of choices, how do you program them in? And what it raises is also, I mean, it's sort of like a tort lawyer's wet dream. You know, it's sort of like every lawyer in the world can't wait for these things to happen because everybody's going to get sued. Everybody will get served. The manufacturer, the designer, the drivers in case, maybe even the people who built the highways. I mean, everybody gets nailed in a situation like this as they try to figure out who's liable. And then how do you how do you basically apportion that out? Um, now, where I've seen great inroads, all pun intended, uh, in the driverless car situation is where they've done the tests, I believe in Australia and maybe in Arizona, uh, of putting them in closed track scenarios in senior citizen communities or retirement communities where they're on essentially a controlled uh, route to get you from your house to the grocery store or to the uh, entertainment center or to the library or to the bank, all within, all within a basically a gated community. And in those situations, they've proven themselves to be excellent alternatives to, uh, to cars with drivers and a much safer way to do it. Yeah, I think that that's symptomatic of the way this technology is going to roll out. When Google finally puts a marketable car on the road, it's not going to be a car that can go everywhere. The name of the game in terms of getting this technology to market is finding ways to cut out the trickier problems. So if you're sticking to a college campus or a senior residential area and the vehicle goes slowly, that's one way of kind of peeling off the more difficult variables. And that's what Uber is doing, for example. In Pittsburgh, it started its testing just with a very small, maybe like 12 square miles of Pittsburgh, something relatively small, manageable, where they could have good maps, and then you expand from there. And I think that's how this technology is going to roll out over the next couple of years, is in very select situations to begin with, and then slowly expanding from there as the systems become better and their users become more confident. Okay, so here's a stupid scenario of the day. The job security officer for Uber drivers. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, uh, that's, you know, Uber in particular is eager to put this technology because their biggest cost to their business, the main thing keeping them back from being as profitable as they could be, is that they have to pay a lot of humans to drive their cars. And... You know, Uber, when they talk about this, will say, oh, we're trying to make the road safer. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to make things more efficient and better for the user. They're trying to make more money, and that means cutting out the human driver. And I don't think they've ever been that concerned about that. So, no, ultimately, uh, there are a lot of people who make their living um, driving in the U.S., especially truck drivers. And those jobs will start to go away, although it won't happen that quickly. And, of course, you also have it on the retail side, Amazon and other companies, the big box stores, uh, you know, looking at driverless, obviously, cars and driverless drones um, and for the same exact purpose. Exactly, because, you know, making everything more efficient. And if you look at the businesses that are trying to make the self-driving technology their goal is not just to use it in their own vehicles. They're eager to sell it to other manufacturers. So if Amazon doesn't make its own self-driving truck, they'll buy the technology from Nissan or Volvo or Daimler or Google or whoever's there to put it forward. Now, you mentioned Nissan. Um, an interesting development after CES, you say that Nissan is essentially pushing back, saying, hold on, guys, we don't, we're not that confident that a truly driverless car is going to work until we have another idea. Exactly. And it's just that kind of situation that you mentioned a moment ago. If you're stuck behind a truck and you know that you can safely inch around the double yellow line, that's the kind of thing that Nissan's chief of R&D says its cars won't be able to do for years because there's just there's too much nuance, there's too much cognition happening there. So what they want to do is pair your self-driving car so you'll get into their car in a ride-sharing situation, no steering wheel, no pedals. And if it gets into a situation like that, It'll send up an alert to a human in a call center somewhere. So if you think, like, if you've ever called, you know, your cable provider or insurance company, it's not too encouraging. But Nissan thinks that if they can get humans on the line to tell your car what to do fast enough, 
then that's a reasonable stopgap solution so they don't have to wait for 10 more years of computer advances to put this technology on the road and start making money off of it. But we're talking about challenges that would happen almost instantaneously and reaction time has to be just as instantaneous. Is that possible? So that's not strictly possible. If you're talking about an emergency driving situation, the human in the call center isn't going to help you. So if the car hits black ice and starts to spin out, that's the kind of thing the car has to be able to do. This I mean, Alex, Alex the, human in, the, Alex, the human in the call center can't even get me my, my cable TV turned on in three weeks. So, so I'm a little worried about any Anytime you use the words call center, I know I'm going to be put on hold. <laughs> yeah, so that's not... <laughs> Then this is part of the reason that Nissan has an on-staff anthropologist to start saying, okay, we want to do this. How can we feasibly get people to think that this is a reasonable solution? So no, the human in the call center is not there to help you if you're about to crash into a semi or anything like that. It's for a very specific kind of problem, more a cognition problem where the car would stop safely. And they think that if they can get you an answer within 30 seconds, that you'll be pretty happy. They're even more worried about the people outside the car who are going to be, if they, don't, if they don't care too much about Nissan right now, they might, you might well end up hating their brand if you're constantly stuck behind their self-driving cars while, while they're on hold waiting for their answer of what to do. Yeah, no kidding. Talk about getting rear-ended. Um, yeah. It, it could happen. There was a joke that, uh, that Stephen Colbert talked about as he predicted the future the other night. He said, this is the year when two self-driving cars will get into a fight over a parking spot. And then, you know, but at least humans won't have to get into those fights. (laughs) Okay, we've delegated that. But one of the other things we can talk about is take that scenario. You you know, we've talked about this, the real human problem that Volvo worked on. And and that is, you know, driver assist technology can only go so far, right? Right. And part of the problem is that it's difficult. Human drivers are... You know, we're not great drivers to begin with because we tend not to pay attention. We tend to, you know, doze off or, you know, kind of lose interest in driving as we're doing it. And that makes us bad drivers. It makes us really bad backup drivers. So something that automakers who are working on kind of advanced driver assist technologies are trying to sort out is if you need the human to be able to take the wheel in certain situations, how do you even make sure that they're going to be mentally ready to do that, you know, if they haven't, if they're on the highway and they haven't been driving in four hours, they're sleeping, they're doing whatever. Right. How do you get them back into the loop? And that's a really, really difficult design challenge to the point where some automakers, like Ford, for example, Google, they're saying we're just not going to try it. We think that's an impossible. We think a fully self-driving car is easier than monitoring a human inside the car. Well, we're talking to Alex Davies from uh, from Wired Magazine. In fact, in in the Wired Magazine piece about the Volvo. It basically said, a car. I'm quoting now, a car with any level of autonomy that relies upon a human to save the day in an emergency poses almost insurmountable engineering design and safety challenges simply because, I love this part, humans are for the most part horrible backups. <laughs> yeah, if you, I mean, think about it, and I think the example we used in the article is imagine you're watching a movie, you're totally invested in doing something, somebody throws on the light and throws you a Rubik's Cube and says, solve it. Like how quickly does your mind going to be able to change gears to get into a challenge like that? And that's exactly what you're looking at in driving is that we are psychologists have studied this. They say this is not a thing humans are good at. Mm. And so the challenge is going to be able to figure out how to make us reasonably decent. Or when in doubt, call Watson. Hey, we're speaking with Alex Davies from Wired Magazine. Stick with us, Alex. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, some of your predictions for the year ahead. Back right after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We're speaking with Alex Davies from Wired Magazine on the brave new world of supposedly uh, wireless wireless cars. Uh, earlier in the show, Alex, I gave my 
my sort of New Year's resolutions and hopes for travel in the year 2017. From your perspective, what do you want to see happen? What I'm excited about within the world, especially self-driving cars, is I think 2016 was the year that a lot of people realized how real this technology is going to be. It was the year that the big automakers who have been traditionally not so interested in this kind of thing said, yep, we're going for it. We're mobility companies. 2017 is going to be the year that they actually really get down to business. You're going to see it start seeing a lot more testing. Volvo's going to do a real-world test uh, with 100 drivers. They're going to take actual customers, and they're going to say, here, we're giving you a self-driving car for the year. We're going to see how this works. Google is starting to talk about actually commercializing its technology. Its self-driving unit spent almost 10 years in an experimental phase, and now it's a standalone company under Google's parent company, Alphabet. So that means it has to start making money. They're going to start seeing more partnerships. So I think this is the year that you really start to see the self-driving car idea become something of an industry. You're going to see more partnerships, and you're going to see a lot more serious testing. Well, you'll probably see some licenses, right? They'll be licensing the technology, yeah. Yeah, lots of licensing the technology. And on the legislative side, which is really important and I think underappreciated aspect of this is how to actually safely get these cars on the road and how to make our laws grapple with the idea of humans not in charge anymore. So I think you'll see a lot more states trying to figure out how to regulate the technology and you'll probably see some legal skirmishes like uh, Uber wanting to test in California, but without getting the proper permit. Okay, stupid question of the day. Are you ready? I cannot go out today and drive a car or rent a car unless I have a driver's license, which means I have to go to the DMV after I've properly been schooled and take a road test and, and a written test and show my proficiency in both before they'll grant me a license. Once you have driverless cars, who's got the license? So right now, that's totally unclear. Presumably, the manufacturer will have to prove its technology is safe before being allowed to put it on the road. But there's no mechanism for doing that. And here you get into the really weird, sticky parts of the law where traditionally... It's been up to the federal level to say, okay, this is how cars are made. And the states get to say, okay, this is how cars behave, right? Federal regulators say you need seatbelts. New York State says 55-mile-per-hour speed limit. And now this is a technology that mashes those two together. So it's not even clear who's in charge of making the rules, let alone what those rules are going to be. And there's the problem because, I mean, it's, it's truly uncharted territory. Right. And the thing the regulator, sorry, the thing the manufacturers fear above all else is the idea of every different state coming up with different rules for how to certify their technology. They are not interested in passing 50 or more different driver's tests just to sell their cars in the United States. And so they're currently lobbying pretty fiercely for the feds to come in and say, okay, we're going to take this over. Here are the rules for the entire country. I mean, isn't it so much like similar to the situation of who sets the speed limits state by state, right? Exactly. And so you could right now in this early stage, a few states have different testing rules. And so right now, if an autonomous car that has permits to test in both California and Nevada crosses the border, it has to change its license plates. And this is exactly the kind of thing that regulates <laughs> It's James Bond. People. Exactly. Except you get out and you with a little screwdriver. Just nothing so fancy about it. Amazing. I mean, I can't wait to be in a driverless car, get a ca- getting caught in an a, a autonomous speed trap by an, by a robotic cop. Exactly, because you then went into your software and hacked it so that you could drive faster than the manufacturer wants you to go. Well, now okay, now you've really opened the door here, Alex, because you know people are going to do that. You know they are. They're going, to override, they're going to override everything they can, and then the liability issues get even crazier. It's like, it's like you know, turning your car into a hot rod. Exactly. And so certainly there will be some kind of market for that. Just how difficult it will be is hard to predict, but that's a whole other aspect that's going to complicate this technology moving forward is how do you protect it? How do you keep the data private? And 
people who say, well, you know, police won't even have to pull you over anymore. They'll just send a car you know, command to your car and your car will pull itself over or drive you directly to the police station and lock the door. So who knows how <laughs> all this stuff is going to come out. But there's certainly, I think, the people who tend to be afraid of this kind of thing have a lot of things to be afraid of. Well, I can't wait for the first drunk driverless car citation. Right. Or, but then again, you get the idea where all of a sudden you don't have to worry about drunk driving anymore because you say, you know, I'll just take the driverless car. Yeah. Of course, if you take the driverless car and you're drunk, it'll take you someplace you didn't want to go anyway. (laughs) Right to rehab. (laughs) Yeah. Turn right at rehab. That's it. You you, you equip these cars with their own breathalyzers and the car just takes you right to rehab. It knows. It knows. Mm -hmm. I love it. So... Realistically speaking, you know, put on your prognostication hat. I mean, you have some manufacturers saying it's a reality now. It's going to be a reality within 36 months. Then you have Nissan saying, not so fast, guys. We have to bring back the human element uh, with a call center, which, you know, while they're at it, they might as well sell me timeshares. But forgetting that, where do you see this settling out in the next three, four, five years? It's really hard predict. I think what I appreciate about Nissan's perspective on this is that it's tamping down a little bit of that optimism that's been so rampant over the last year or two in particular. So I wouldn't be surprised if Nissan's kind of right. And when I spoke to people in the industry about their idea, they said, you know, a lot of people, even if they're not publicly talking about it, are thinking about it, of teleoperation, a remote operation of cars. Isn't that crazy an idea? And it's certainly something that could help if the technology doesn't move quite as quickly as everybody thinks it will over the next three, four years. Then you bring in that kind of stopgap solution. And if that doesn't happen, then I think what you'll see is just a very constricted application of this technology, at least in terms of entirely self-driving cars. I think you'll only see them in very limited cases. And that's how it'll shake out. Because I remember, you know, the 1964 World's Fair, you know, the cars of the future and everything short of the Jetsons, they ran on a track. They ran on like a railroad track. They didn't have the kind of free free will that is, is being designed, if you will, into the current, you know, class of driverless cars. Right. And the track idea actually makes a lot of sense until you remember that, you know, we've got... We'd have to spend billions and billions of dollars just to get American highways and bridges to a point where they're not at risk of falling down, let alone building in new uh, electronic infrastructure for self-driving cars. I know, it's crazy. So basically, if I can paraphrase or sum up what you said, Alex, don't hold your breath for a truly driverless car in the next three or four years, but in limited applications, we will see something. Okay, what do I win? A driverless car? <laughs> yeah, a, a ride, a free ride. A free Inside ride with, with limited liability. A free ride right. with limited liability. Is there one manufacturer out there between BMW, Audi, Volvo, Mercedes, Buick, Cadillac that's doing better than the others in terms of their advanced work on this? It's hard to say because they're not all that public with exactly what their technology can do and when they do show it off, it's in very limited cases. I think that in the entire industry, Google is very advanced. Uber is very advanced. Within the automotive manufacturers, I'm interested to see what Ford and GM are doing. Because they're the bigger companies that historically have not been so technology forward, especially talking about this sort of thing, and who have made big promises to actually bring this out in the next couple of years. So it would be great to see if they can do it. Now, let me give you an Uber example. Uh, the other night, I was in New York, uh, and it was late at night. Couldn't find a cab, so I decided to Uber it. Uh, Uber guy shows up on my screen within two minutes, shows up, put my bags in the car. We're heading to the airport. And he's going to follow his GPS, okay? That's what he's going to do. And I said to him, hey, I live in the neighborhood here. I'm going to show you a better way. And he didn't want to take the better way. Finally, we did the better way, and we got there 10 minutes earlier. Where's my ability to override that if we have a truly driverless car? Because it's not going to listen to me. No, I don't think it will. I think at some point you're just going to have to relax and say, you know what, 
you're going to take the route you're going to take. Or, you know, a manufacturer could think about that and say, you know, sometimes people are going to be picky about what routes they take. So maybe there will be a way to build in an option where you've got your little control screen and you can say, actually, do you know what? Take the highway here or don't take the highway or maybe draw it a new route. That's not impossible to imagine. But right. it would have to be something the manufacturer thinks ahead and builds into its surface. Well, then here's my prediction for this year, next year, and the year after. With all due respect to Nissan and their, I happen to think, silly idea of a call center, although I'm sure it's well-intentioned, um, there's going to have to be an override provision built into every first, second, and third model year car that's considered driverless, or the public, I don't think, is going to have enough confidence to buy one. Probably not. And I think to throw in throw another wrench into this conversation is why I think one of the first applications of this technology you'll see will be in trucking. Because in trucking, where there are a lot of benefits and trucks drive in relatively simple situations, they're mostly on the highway where things don't get that crazy. And truck operators who would love to have a little bit more efficient operation then are making much more of an economic, rational decision as opposed to trying to convince ex-members of the public that your technology is safe, you go to a couple of trucking companies and you say, you're going to save 50% on costs. It's a much easier argument to make. Oh, yeah. And then you know who goes out of business? Truck stops. Yep. Because nobody has to sleep on the road anymore. No, and it's there are something like two or three million truck drivers in the United States. Um, those jobs start to go away. Although, gradually, you'll still need... I can't oh, sure. imagine people letting semis on the highway with no human inside <laughs> in, in the next. It's going to be a while. Well, or or they let semis on the highway only between two in the morning and six in the morning. It's every man for himself. Right, but you know <laughs> that's not such a bad thing. You know, the roads are clear. Yeah, fewer complications, and then if you're going over to a robot system, you don't worry nearly as much about driver rest and sleep deprivation and things that tend to happen. And then to and truly date, right? And then to truly date myself, you take the old George Raft movie, which was called "They Drive by Night," and you change the title to "They Only Come Out at Night." Right. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Alex Davies from Wired Magazine. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Obviously, a subject that's not going to go away anytime soon. It's only going to get more and more important, and we will stay on top of it because you're on top of it. That concludes this episode of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.